Amrita. Bhakti, here's a question for you. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Is English the best language of them all? Mm, this is embarrassing because I want to answer this in Marathi, but that's not what we agreed <laughs> on for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And yet, who are we without our English? Is that a thing to say? Amrita and I are both professors of English literature. <laughs> so uh, we know the right thing to say is no, English is not the best language of them all. But I think today we want to think about um, ways in which uh, our identity as Indians, as South Asians is so determined by the English language. And of course, we are both fluent in uh, a few other Indian languages. I'm fluent in Marathi as well as in Hindi for the most part. Um, and I also learned Gujarati as a kid, also learned Telugu. So, you know, I think, um, but the truth is that our education was in English, our schooling was in English, and we live in the United States and teach in English and we teach literature uh, written or translated into English. So it's um, it's super complicated. And we've both been thinking about this topic for a long time, right, Amrita? Yes, absolutely. And you really nailed it that, you know, it's kind of ironic. Uh, and of course, we are being mischievous here. But we both teach literatures in English, to be fair, uh, from the Global South, post-colonial literatures. And I know you teach literatures from Africa. I teach South Asian literatures. And yet this is a really complex, difficult question about the dominance and the currency of English language. Um, where, how does it intricately com combine with our identities, as you mentioned um, in the Indian subcontinent, mm -hmm. and has so many different complexities of caste, of class, of um, our professional worlds, all coming together in this one mm -hmm. language. Right, right, absolutely. And of course, as I said before, the answer is always going to be no. Is English the yes. best language of them all? Of course not. Uh, but not. it is an established fact that English does dominate our professional lives, uh, job opportunities, you know, like, uh, you know, it's just, it's just the thing that parents do uh, if they want their children to succeed, right? Try to get them in an English medium school and then move forward like that. So I completely agree with you. And, you know, I'm thinking back to our childhood schooling days uh, when mm -hmm. I was learning vernacular um, Bangla to read and write. And yet there was this thrust that I needed to be really, really good in English. That was mm -hmm. always the undercurrent, uh, the subtext that was playing out underneath it all. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so embarrassing when when someone isn't. Or, you know, I still remember like the parent supremacy, right? There are, the, yeah. there are the parents that speak good English and they're very considered very posh and respectable. And then there are the parents who may, you know, not be speaking as well. And that's a little bit of an embarrassment, um, you know, in the, in the school playground. And, you know, not just parents, I'm thinking back, uh, you know, we have only started scratching the surface. There's accent politics here, right? Mm. You know, how we speak and their Bengalis are made fun of within India about how <laughs> a Bengali <laughs> speaks English. And, you know, there's so many different kinds of uh, politics in how the English language actually, uh, again, 
posits a certain kind of identity structure in the subcontinent. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know how much time you spend on TikTok, Amrita, but I actually waste a lot of time there. <laughs> and there's <laughs> there's all these accounts. And, you know, I think you see them on Instagram, too. There's all these accounts where people are uh, speaking English or Hindi in a Marathi accent, and then they do these little mm-hmm. bits, or there are the ones where it's a South Indian accent, how you go shopping in uh, in Malayalam, or how you go mm. do certain things in this or that. And of course, we're all laughing, and it's totally hilarious, and these are great performers. Uh, but my God, <laughs> what what have we got here? You know, it's so, it's it's right. painful at the end of the day. It is. And as we both know, comedy does bring up a different kind of uh, structure of hegemony. And comedy is really, is it funny? Because it is underlying a lot of different kinds of prejudice and bias. And in fact, Mm -hmm. this one is about how language plays out within the subcontinent. And it alienates so many people against each other, I would say even. Right, right. I mean, I I think for us to get at this debate... Is English the best language of them all? Which is not the question at all. The question is, what do we do with this English language supremacy? How does it play out in movies, in TV series, in our daily lives, in, uh, in every other way in India, as well as in the diaspora where we are? Um, so I think, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to do this, Amrita, but I think I'm going to have to start by uttering the C word. Wait, the C word you said? <laughs> yeah, but you have such a dirty mind. I'm just talking about colonialism. <laughs> oh my um, goodness! Okay. Of course, the the big yeah. bad C word of colonialism. Yes, we must talk about the colonial legacies that has uh, got us where we are here today, right? Yes, 1835 yeah. is when the Minute on Education was passed, and uh, they mm-hmm. said all the money has to go into an English education and the Empire. Literally, the document has this line about creating a class of persons, Indian in color and blood, but English in taste and opinion, in morals and intellect. I mean, you know, we can start writing a decolonial essay on this, just that. Mm. Uh, But it's frightening in how it has then trickled down into who we are today. Right. And I guess our guest today uh, is Daisy Rockwell, who has been translating from Hindi and Urdu and is an acclaimed uh, translator. And uh, she's American. And I think she's going to have to um, weigh in on where we are today. But this this thing you're talking about, the Minute on Education from 1835, is reminding me a little bit about uh, reminding me of, you know, the late Irfan Khan um, did that fabulous film. Uh, I'm forgetting now what it's called, but it's like, it's these, it's this, it's a family and the, and the wife is very keen that her child only go into uh, an English language school. Do you know which film oh. I'm talking about? Oh my goodness, yes, it is the fan, it is a really good film. It's Angrezi Medium you're talking about, right? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. It's a sad film. It's it's you know it's actually a reminder of the brutal reality that we live in today. It's the language snobbery in the most brutal form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm remembering uh, the late uh, Irfan Khan also mentioned in an interview at that point that we are more conscious of speaking English than any other country in the world. Uh, when Is you know true? he was working, that's a very sad reality, isn't that, Bhakti? Do you agree? Is this true? 
this is this is very depressing and of course we are the culprits here with our own uh, english language training and uh, literary training and you know doing this podcast in english do you think it's true i mean to a certain extent i would say you know i actually do agree that we are very conscious of speaking but you know again why is it so is very important uh, a question to ask at this point i mean because mm-hmm. jobs the the dominance of you know um, professional lives about getting a certain kind of job about having a certain kind of status unfortunately in in india everything is related to how we present ourselves in this language mm-hmm. and you know we have seen so many um, different spaces even in films and bollywood that there are people who are, don't speak the language so well they're looked down upon and they're they're made fun of so mm-hmm. it's a deeply sad truth that we have come to i know and i think um yeah i think i think this is true and i i you know i'm trying to think of like this coolness factor you know when i was growing yeah. up like yeah. it, it it's cool right like it's also cool to say if you're in a kind of western education sort of structure uh, in india it's also cool to be like oh you know i don't watch bollywood movies you know i only mm. watch like hollywood stuff or like yeah. to always be looking out west to always yeah. be engaging with the west and and i'll be mm. very honest i mean i was very much a teenager uh, in mm. a catholic all girls school and no i didn't listen i didn't buy cassettes of uh, bollywood music oops i just said cassettes it means everyone will now find out that i'm <laughs> 200 years old <laughs> Oh, it's goodness. true. I know. So you know, I I don't remember ever buying cassettes of like a Bollywood music, even though I know them. You know, I know the music. I did watch the movies, uh, yeah. but it was not cool to be like go out shopping and not buy your Madonnas and your George Michaels or your Michael Jacksons or whatever those tapes were at the mm-hmm. time. I think it might be slightly different in cities that are not Bombay. In Bombay, we there's a particular intensity uh, around. kind of english language as a unifier language and mm. you know there's just it's not clear that you know because it's such a kind of migrant city where people come from all over india you know mm. um there isn't an imperative to learn marathi and i don't know if that's mm. different in 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 bengal amrita i mean you can you can say more or in delhi for example mm. i don't know Well, you know, I have lived in both spaces as a child. I lived in Calcutta and then my family moved to Delhi and in both spaces the the English language operated in similar but in you know sometimes in different contexts. I'm thinking, you know, there's the construction of the Bengali elite, very English speaking, mm. definitely in Delhi uh when I was older and I um you know urban youth i was experiencing the exposure to college crowd it was all english so there there is this currency of you know the coolness of the the teenagers and the college going mm-hmm. crowd to use english in a very specific way so you know what makes me sad is i've obviously participated as you're talking about the music and the buying and you know i knew the dominant <laughs> bollywood songs out there i would even sing along but when it came to my friend circle there was this sharing of the pink floyd i'm also 200 years old as you can see so <laughs> hey big love to pink floyd come on now <laughs> yes exactly yeah but you know uh, what what is sad about this is you know it it 
it does tell us about the elite constructions of class, about also religion and caste that are intertwined, right? I mean, mm -hmm. how we speak the language also um, gives away a certain kind of caste and religious Absolutely. determinations. And, and that's frightening. And then I there know. is bias and prejudice along with that. I know. Um, it's so true. And did you feel, because I'm trying to think of when I became really conscious of this issue. I mean, of course, part of it was, you know, when I moved to the U.S. to do my undergrad and I did my Ph.D. in the U.S. as well, um, English was the good thing. It was good that I was good in English, right? Uh, because mm -hmm. you also saw that the people who came to universities to study, say, engineering or something like that, um, you know, they had a different relationship to English, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, for me, it was super important that my English mm -hmm. was good, that my written, spoken, all that stuff uh, for mm -hmm. my profession that ended up being this uh, academic profession, you know, editing, mm -hmm. writing, uh, uh, lecturing. But... You know, I don't think I started to think um, how intense this stuff was until I started to dive deep actually into more um, African literatures and reading more about kind of the debates within African literature and culture. And one of the most important uh, documents that is very pro uh, mother tongues is mm. by the Kenyan writer Gugiwa Thiongo who of gave course. a set of lectures um, in the 70s and the 80s, which became a book called Decolonizing the Mind. Yes, absolutely. And this became an absolutely influential book. And I'm just going to say a little bit about it. I know you know, but just for our mm. listeners, this mm. became a book that, um, you know, Decolonizing the Mind uh, was groundbreaking because what it was saying is that we are colonized in our uh, psyche and mm. uh, and in our in our in our brain and in our cultural realms because we are not engaging with our mother tongues and mm. in that time uh, Gugiwa Thiongo made a big switch and he decided to start writing in his mother tongue Gikuyu uh, and he said that right. you know the colonialism uh, in English language colonialism has led was like a cultural bomb. There was also the violence of colonialism, actual military violence, but there was also a cultural violence right. uh, that right. it did. And I think uh, India is an extremely uh, interesting uh, place to think about this, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, of course, so is Pakistan. I think so is Nepal. I think so is Bangladesh. I think as a subcontinent, as, a, as South Asians, all these places are very interesting studies uh, in in you know, in the inability really to decolonize our minds. You know, I think when Daisy comes, we will know a little bit more about what's happening in the world of translation uh, and yes. how it's reviving local language literature. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this is when I, you know, to get back to my sort of uh, thing that I was saying, which is that this is when I became more conscious mm -hmm. of, of the language debates. And I started to think about it in within the Indian context. Mm. Where, mm. When, when would you say was your opening around this opening of the mind, if you not know, decolonizing? <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, I agree with everything that you're saying. And uh, Gugi was extremely influential. But I'm looking back um, in my upbringing and my childhood um, into those time periods. And I think there's an awareness, I think, for you too, Bhakti, and for all of us who are, you know, in this kind mm -hmm. of English schooling, English uh, medium of instruction, our parents are sending us to uh, English medium schools 
for a specific reason because it is considered better. So I think, you know, it was not that I was as a child com was completely conscious that this was happening, but I knew there was this lurking mm -hmm. around phenomenon that I had to be good in English. As I said that, you know, I even when later was reading and uh, learning Hindi, it was not considered cool or good enough, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, and you mentioned college. And when I was doing my, um, you know, studies in English literature, um, at that point, it was considered good. But I also think there are certain other politics here where English studies in India at the time were predominantly gendered. Women were the main students. So there's an interesting dynamics there also that who studies English mm -hmm. Um in India. Uh, but then I moved to the States. And I remember for the first time that actually, I was completely astonished that I were I was offered courses in postcolonial literatures. Mm -hmm. And that was when I also discovered <laughs> Googie. And it was not that, you know, um, these but not the big discourses that I was yeah. learning in yeah. India, suddenly partition literature, which I later on took up as my graduate studies and eventually my uh, doctoral studies, it was a thing here that was fascinating and vast. And at mm -hmm. that time, it was not a possibility, or at least uh, I didn't know of that I could be doing my doctoral studies in partition literature. Right. So, so those are kinds of things that unfortunately, my move away from the Indian subcontinent dawned on me in very mm -hmm. specific ways. But I would still say that the consciousness was still there, you know, that this is a language that would give me more success than the others. I, I think that's kind of inbuilt within our psyche, as you I say, know. right? I know, right? absolutely. And this means we have to mention the other C, which is capitalism, right? Absolutely. Uh, the forces yes. of capitalism. And then, you know, and then there's the third C, which is um, Christianity. And of course, going to Catholic school and also a Jesuit uh, institution in Bombay for my college, you know, all these kinds of things. Uh, they really uh, intensify uh, this experience, right? So, right, you know, right. and I have to say like, uh, when in the late 90s, um, I was, uh, you know, I was in I was in college in Bombay, and I started working by some weird twist of fate for Channel V. So at wow. the time, yeah, at the time, you know, Star TV and all these things had just come uh, to India, and I was to do the scripts for the for the VJs at the time, and the VJs were Ruby Bhatia, Luke Kenny, um, mm. all these people, you know, and uh, and it was a very cool job, super fun. And what happened? I worked there for about two years, and what happened over time is that they realized that this English language scripting, this very mm. Western uh, mm. approach to to music, because you know the whole idea was to bring us like American pop music you know right um, right and it was suddenly not you know they were not getting the indian populations that they wanted which are the people mm. who are not well versed with this uh, with this stuff so the pressure on me at the time was to start writing in what was called hinglish to include right. more street phrases and things like that and you know i couldn't do it because first of all Hindi wasn't my language. Uh, mm. It wasn't what I spoke at home. I spoke a combination of Marathi and English at home. And um, I couldn't do it. And so at that time, it felt like, 
now we're moving to to something else. You know, are we moving to a more uh, ethno-nationalist understanding uh, mm. of of the Indian culture? But I think that never really panned out. I think you know. Um, I think I think those debates still remain the same. I think there's lots more Bollywood now, but then Bollywood also does some weird stuff <laughs> with languages, <laughs> right? They Absolutely. also speak some strange version of Hindi and English, especially the yes. interviews uh, with stars and stuff. There, right. uh, I don't know. It's like half the words are in English and half are in Hindi. I don't know. Well, you know, I am not completely for language purity. I mean, I think I like sure. the fact that, you know, language evolves and it becomes a little more creolized, different kinds of influences mm -hmm. from the past, from the present times. But, you know, what shocked me is when you're saying that this was your task in Channel V to make it a <laughs> little more uh, Indianized, if you will. Hindiized. <laughs> Hindiized, exactly. And, you know, I've always struggled with the notion of Hinglish. I'm right now speaking from a space where there's this strange phenomenon called Swanglish, which is uh, um, oh. English infused Swedish and mm -hmm. cool kids, cool quote unquote kids are speaking in that kind of fashion with certain mm -hmm. words uh, in, in the entire sentence that would only be English and the rest of his uh, rest of it is in Swedish. So, you know, it's, it's a kind of a uh, added phenomenon that tells us where the trends of the language are. You know, mm -hmm. it has to be a what what makes me sad is it has to be a derivative of the larger dominance or the snobbery of English. We are not done without it, right? I know. Uh, well, there's yes. also franglais, which is the French and English, <laughs> the Spanglish. You know, I mean, it just, it's a... It goes it's on. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite endless. Right, right. But so, you know, I wanted to ask you if you think then... You mentioned decolonize the mind, which is, you know, it's the hardest thing. I don't think we can ever be de decolonized in that way, even yeah. in our lifestyles, in our languages. But I mean, are we constantly then having a derivative approach to language um, in India or, or in the Indian subcontinent? Is it always English and then the hierarchy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're going to I don't know the answer to that. And of course, I can only speak for um, India, mm. but uh, it certainly feels that way. But I think yeah. that's why when Daisy comes, right? Uh, we, you know, maybe she can she can shed light on this. I mean, Daisy is uh, is is American, you know, and uh, she has a perspective on India that might be somewhat, perhaps, it's a little bit uh, distanced from our sense of kind of having grown up there and you know with all the kind of daily nuances of of multiple languages you know we are right. constantly in and out of multiple languages um so i wonder what perspective uh she can add you know to this we have with us daisy rockwell who has just joined who's a writer translator painter and she translates hindi and urdu literatures into english Many also perhaps don't know Daisy Paints under the alias Lapata. She also, <laughs> she also has a doctorate in South Asian literature, but I also want to know specifically why she calls herself Lapata. Hi, Daisy. Hi. Um, yes, Lapata. That's my takalus. That's the Urdu word for like a nom de plume. Nice. Um, and I chose that... I, I think you'll both appreciate the story. I was um, I was working at UC Berkeley. I ran the Center for South Asia Studies and I decided 
I just had had enough with academia and academic life and I quit my job and I had no plans and no idea what I was going to do. And everyone was very shocked. And, um, and I just left and I said I wasn't going to do anything related to what I had been trained to do mm. at all. And I started doing some printmaking and wow. like grant writing. Anyway, <laughs> this went on for, you know, a year or so. And then a friend of mine, Manon Ahmed, asked me to write for his blog, Chapati Mystery. Mm. And I said, well, I don't right. want to do it under my name, like, because I was just in this very underground mode. I don't want to do it under my name. I don't want anyone to know who I am. He said, well, they don't have to. He said, you can, you can have an, an alias. So, um, so I chose La Pata because uh, whenever I talk to someone from my academic life, they'd say, what happened to you? You've disappeared. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so, so La Pata is, uh, that's me yeah. disappearing from my life, like absconding, you know, as they say in Indian newspapers. <laughs> yeah, wow. So first of all, I want to start with a big congratulations. Uh, our audience, I think, knows this is uh, the International Booker Prize went to Daisy Rockwell and Gitanjali Shri for the incredible complex and rich novel, The Tomb of Sand. And we are so excited to talk to you today about this conversation we are having on the English language. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me just jump in quickly. So The Tomb of Sand, originally written as, uh, originally titled uh, Red Samadhi, is by Gitanjali Shri, who's been writing a lot of stuff in um, uh, Hindi. And, you know, her works have been getting translated in, uh, in India, uh, but it seemed like it wasn't until um, the big Booker, International Booker Prize, that we really began to confront, um, you know, all, this, all these translations happening from Indian languages into English, South Asian languages into English. Um, and I think, you know, our topic today, of course, is, uh, Daisy, a very strange question we've asked ourselves, and we know that the answer is no. So we are, we are running with mirror, mirror on the wall. Is English the best language of them all? Bhakti said something important before, that is it the translation that has put these literatures on the map without which we would not be hearing about them at all mm -hmm. yeah right. but uh, yeah but yeah that's true you know so i think i think maybe i want to start by asking a different question what do you think of the uh, south asian language literature landscape generally i mean is english is english getting people's attention or is there a scene where the English is just an interruption? It's not really doing anything that there exists a, a vibrant scene anyway. Well, I think pretty much all the major languages have a scene. Mm -hmm. um, and that where English is kind of, yeah, an irritant. And you'll see a lot of authors say, you know, even be pretty political about how I mean, it's it's a difficult thing for them because they will say, I don't care if I'm translated into English. Hmm. Like, I'm interested in my own language. I write in Tamil and I love Tamil and I'm writing for my Tamil readers um, or whatever language. 
Um, but then, of course, you know, this, like, they see what happened to Gitanjali or something like that, and this level <laughs> of notoriety that can be drummed up is amazing. And, of course, then the idea is not just reading, reaching English readers, but once you have an English translation, it can become a bridge to other translations because um, it's harder to find, you know, the person that knows Tamil and Polish or something like that. But once your translation gets into English, it can be the English translations are often used as a bridge into other languages. So it's just the, it, it unlocks all these possibilities of, of worldwide domination, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, Gitanjali, remember the Amul board, Amul butter? Yes. <laughs> You got, you guys, you you girls, no, you wonderful, talented women got a full Amol billboard called Jitanjali when she won. That yes, <laughs> that, that was domination. the highest, the highest praise. Yeah, that's world domination. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. But I'm also wondering, uh, this is the question for you, Daisy, but both of you can weigh in. I mean, what happens to readership within India of vernacular languages once these um, fiction, writing get translated into English? Are we losing regional readers of the language itself who are now going to go and read the fiction in English? Does that happen too? Um, yeah, it could happen. and But, I mean, English already has such an enormous... Um, but, you know, like hold on um, the subcontinent and on the whole region, as you said. So like whether or not a, an English language translation exists of a novel is immaterial to the whole thing. But, you know, what we've seen with Tomb of Sand, which is actually very, very exciting, is a lot of people going back to hmm. Hindi. And I mm. have, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, I haven't read Hindi since class 10. Wow. And I'm so slow and I'm so bad, but um, but I decided I was going to read it. And sometimes they're even openly sort of hostile to my translation and say, you know, <laughs> like I tried reading your translation, but it just felt wrong. And, um, and wow. so I went back wow. to Hindi. And I, but I'm like, yay, good, do it. Right. Because like, I love the idea that that my translation would get all these people who had never even considered reading in Hindi mm. for the last 20 years to suddenly open up a Hindi book. And it's become like a fad. It's, it's actually trendy to do that. Wow. Right. Yeah. And I was also thinking while you were speaking so eloquently about, the, you know, the English language being a bridge language to these literatures that in a way, the translated works that you are um, doing, that you're working on, is also putting vernacular languages from the Indian subcontinent in a larger world map, which mm -hmm. would not have been read before. For, you know, both of us, me and Bhakti are literature professors. And, you know, I definitely know that I am putting in a lot more translated works into mm -hmm. the syllabus than before. And right, that's a very right. exciting thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. Because you capture so many more voices, you know, that yeah. way. Yeah. Though it is a bit funny um, sometimes, you know, we know, fine, English may have a certain supremacy, right? But there's also the debate about Hindi in India. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, an yeah. age old debate about whether Hindi uh, should be our national language. You know, the South mm -hmm. Indians are like totally against it. You know, yeah. the Bengalis have their own supremacy going. You <laughs> know, the Maharashtrians <laughs> are doing their yes, own thing. Yes. Know. So, mm -hmm. 
you know, and it's it's funny now with all these awards and new festivals like highlighting translated work, and I'm talking within Europe and North America, within the mm -hmm. outside of India, and now we're hearing marginalized literatures from India are being translated. Look at Daisy <laughs> and Gitanjali, right? That's um, I know. <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, what do you make of that? Uh, no, it's very silly. I mean, we were, I was a, a um, judge for this Armory Square Ventures Prize. And so we were evaluating all the applications. And one of the um, rubrics was, you know, how underrepresented is this language? And so I was going through it and I finally I wrote to everyone. I said, why do we even have this rubric? Because in American publishing, every single one of these languages is underrepresented. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. if it's Assamese or like Dogri or if it's Hindi or Tamil, it's all, all of it is just not even there. So like it's, everything is context, you know? So in, mm -hmm. in India, Hindi is not underrepresented. And like there is for historical reasons, Bengali literature is the most translated, but even though it's not necessarily mm -hmm. the biggest language in India, you know, so mm. everything, everything is context. And so like outside of India, you know, we're the poor little engine who could, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but in the subcontinent where Hindi were dominant and, you know, and we have to make sure Hitanjali and I both are always going to our way to make sure that we say that we don't think Hindi should be, you know, the monocrop of India either, you know. Right. So. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Absolutely. So what happens to the other side? Are you also looking at this translation publishing market where books from English, you know, mainstream, quote unquote, are getting translated into vernacular languages also? Do you, you do them? I've seen no, this. I don't. <laughs> I've seen this in Kerala, by the way. It is a beautiful yeah. thing to behold. Like mm -hmm. every book that's like, you know, that we know in English is, is in mm. Malayalam. It's just an mm -hmm. awesome. That's yeah. astounding. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, Kerala is different, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think one of the problems is that generally speaking in India, regardless of what language pairing you're talking about, there is not a deliberateness about how things are chosen to be translated. So it's very rare for a publisher to say, oh, look at this hot new book in whatever language. We need a, a translation into our language. Stand, right. you know, and this is how it's mm. done in the rest of the world in a lot of places in Europe and, and the US. Um, so like, like there's a hot new French novel and like some publisher in New York nabs the rights and then mm. they hire a translator. Mm. Totally does not happen in um, South Asia at all. So it's more like everything is basically pitched by the translators. Wow. Um, mm. And so that means translation is entirely almost entirely dependent on the sort of whimsical tastes of a handful of translators who um you know and there's no professionalization of the field of translation either so hmm. so people are it's just kind of like very individualistic at the moment wow i didn't mm. i did not realize that actually that is such an important point daisy because i translated a, a novel from french into english uh some years ago 
And the reason we did it, uh, I co-translated it. Um, reason we did it is because the publisher uh, approached us, actually. Right, exactly. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I didn't realize that it was the reverse, you know. And do you think this will improve, though? I mean, this is where, like, an award like yours comes in, right, which is a significant cash prize mm -hmm. or whatever, and mm -hmm. prestige. Do you think that alters? Is there, Will there be more seeking? There will be more seeking, but how will they figure it out? It's actually the way that the literary climates are like in, in India, it's very hard to figure out what the hot new thing is because they're, um, it's like very kind of word of mouth, Facebook posts, mm. you know, mm. like it's not, um, there's not the same kind of PR culture and for buying books, if you go right. to a, into a Hindi bookstore, this is, I was so shocked when I figured this out. This was a long time ago. But you go into a Hindi bookstore, a lot of times they are set up alphabetically by title, the entire store. Hmm. Okay, hmm. so so you have to know what you want, right? Because oh not it's not even grouped by author last name, for example. Hmm. So you can't wow. browse, you can't say, I want to... And it's and it ends up being sort of like that type of scenario, that type of um, Indian shopping experience, like where you go and you sit in a chair and you say, "I want one of these, I want one of these, I want one of these," and they bring you chai and stuff like that, you know. But that's but that's nice, Daisy. It's nice, isn't it? Then then the expert, which is the bookseller. Yeah, but they're not literary people. Okay, okay. They yeah. didn't read the books. They just I'm, sell books. I'm thinking of the saris. Right, yeah, the Saudis, is a, that's a good experience, the Saudis. And actually, I went to um, I went to an Udu bookshop in Udu Bazaar in New Delhi this winter, and that was different, because even though you had to ask the guy what, you know, where to find something, or did he have this kind of book, he, he definitely was reading the books, like he had that deep expertise so but you don't find that very often uh, but you so said something very, very it, yeah, you go, said something go. so fascinating that you know it, the PR culture and social media all, all that comes into play in a very different light but mm -hmm. you know with something so specific like the tomb of sand that has garnered so much of interest and attention worldwide uh am, am I wrong that it's also getting translated into other languages are you seeing that getting, happen? It is, yeah, it is happening. In fact, last night I was uh, contacted by the Singhala translator. <laughs> so wow. it is happening. Yes, yes. Um, and mm -hmm. I think he's using English as a bridge also. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Daisy, and, are you able to say a little bit about Urdu and Hindi, you know, the difference between the scenes? And like, do you know a bit, bit about... Pakistani translation scene or Pakistani literature mm -hmm. or, you know, just, I don't know. You you don't have to if you don't, but I just wonder. Well, um, I think I was just in Lahore this winter, which was very exciting and for the Lahore Lit Fest. And, um, and I was just really struck by the love of Urdu that um, you don't, I don't feel that love of Hindi in India. Um, you know, like a lot of times if I if people find out I know Hindi or something like that, they say, Well, why did why did you study Hindi? You know, like it's a mm. kind of almost dismissive. 
Why would anybody do that? Um, whereas in, uh, with Urdu, I just, if I answer somebody in Urdu, then they just answer me back. They don't say, what the hell? You know, why are you speaking this language? <laughs> like that's wow. often a response in India when I speak Hindi um, is sort of just this kind of sh surprise. And uh, with wow. Urdu, everyone agrees that it's a lovely thing um, to speak Urdu mm. and they, mm. um, and they're encouraging and, you know, mm -hmm. it's, I, it's, it's, a, it's definitely, I mean, even though people there complain too that Urdu is losing out to English, there's definitely a very strong um, kind of uh, foundation there that's mm. interesting. Um, and the, but the big problem right now, of course, is that there's a, an embargo on any Indian books being imported into Pakistan at all. Mm. So a lot of us are really stuck because, you know, for, for ages, you could publish with Peng Penguin India, even mm. a translation of a Pakistani novel, and it would immediately get exported to Pakistan and no problem. But now, like when I was in Lahore, Pakistan was literally the only country in the world where you could not buy Tomb oh, of Sand. So cool. Oh, oh. Because, because Penguin India had South Asia rights and they couldn't export it. So, um, yeah, so it's really bad in terms of the translation scene because what are you supposed to do? The Pakistan market is very small. Um, so if you sell your translation to Pakistan, then, you know, it's going to sell a few hundred copies, you know, um, mm -hmm. so it's a very bad situation for literature in general. But do you oh. also think that the cultural dominance and you spoke about, um, or do slightly, uh, also the <clears throat> tussle with English in Pakistan, but in a country like India, is it that the cultural dominance of English is there plus the regional politics of Hindi, of Bengali, mm -hmm. of other South yes. uh, Indian languages? Does that make it more difficult? And is this, you know, kind of um, happening in Pakistan where um, it's lesser, the cultural... Well, uh, but in Pakistan, there's also all regional politics. Mm -hmm. Sure, Punjabi sure. And Sindhi and Baluchi and, you yes. know, Pashto and everything. So there are there are politics for sure, and um, the only, one thing that's different though is that they have been kind of successful in making Urdu a uh, national language because they don't have you know the pushback from the South Indian languages that are so linguistically hmm. different uh, from North Indian languages. So there's a there's less pushback, but of course there was so much pushback in in. Uh, you know, um, East Pakistan that they had a That's civil true. war. So there's that too. <laughs> yeah. uh, the whole country, yes. Yeah, the whole country breaks away on the basis yes. of language politics. Language. And that was, I was in Dhaka also this year. I've been a lot of places. And I, I was struck how everyone kept speaking about the fact that it was a, one of the only countries that, um, that was created for a language, like that it was mm. linguistic nationalism was the basis of um, mm. their their national identity. And that was, that was very interesting. No, I'm finding this, you know, realm of uh, vernacular literatures, regional literatures, uh, and the battle of cultural control of English, the linguistic control of English that we have, 
So where are we headed in terms of South Asian literature overall in India, Bangladesh, Pakistan? Do you have a feel for that, Daisy? I mean, you know, you have been translating um, partition literature. I've read Mm -hmm. your translation before. So is it changing? Is the arena of South Asian literatures, um, is it changing? Well, I think it's always changing. I mean, there's just so many languages. That's what makes um, the subcontinent just a fascinating place linguistically. That because there's because of all these politics and this jockeying, and um, there's there's always mm-hmm. changes. And I've something I've found very interesting in the last few years, and also exciting, is for example a resurgence of interest in learning the Urdu script in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a, a lot, you know, it's not like there's millions of people doing it. There might only be hundreds of people. There's may only yes. be hundreds, but there are still, you meet a lot of young people who are interested in learning the script. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this uh, Rekta, the yes. website, an organization is a brilliant, brilliant website. And, uh, you know, I, I use their dictionary every single day. It is just amazing. Because you can enter in um, Urdu or Hindi or English, you can enter a word and then it'll spit back the definition and show it in each script and it'll give you the etymology um, and like Arabic root words and even an example of a word in a share, in a couplet. And so, um, mm-hmm. and then they every year they have this huge festival called Jashne Rekta. Rekta, yeah. That's like very popular, big, fancy thing. So, so there's like there's a resurgence of interest in Urdu. This kind of a pushback against current politics, um, and with Tim of Sand, of course, we're seeing all these people suddenly start reading in Hindi. And I, um, what I hope to see is that with the interest in translation, I hope that more people who can start writing interesting stuff in uh, non-English languages i feel like for a long time everyone felt that they shouldn't do that if they knew english mm. they should write in english but gitanjali has inspired a lot of people because she's often asked why didn't you write this in english your english is so good you could have translated it yourself <laughs> blah blah and she's, it's she true. gets really super enraged by this and she <laughs> says why should i defend my right to write in my mother tongue um mm. and mm. you know I think that that's very powerful statement and I hope that more people take it to heart. India has now overtaken China as the world's most populous country, uh, Mm -hmm. the UN and all (laughs) happy to remind us. (laughs) And that makes one out of every three persons on our planet Indian. But I guess the question is like, what language are they speaking? True. (laughs) Not just one, I don't think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Also, I was thinking, is it true that after United States, India uh, has the highest number of English speakers in the world? I read that somewhere and I was completely shocked that that is mm-hmm. the kind of um, statistics out there. And, you know, also with what uh, Daisy you were saying, uh, you know, this confusion of languages uh, between non-purity English and and other languages, especially Hindi, now producing this Hinglish, and we see that in so many films in Bollywood, right? Mm-hmm. But but is it not true that that kind of fusion of languages and Hinglish is kind of looked down upon, or is that a cool thing to have? 
Uh, who I, looks down on it? I mean, everybody does it. I think, like maybe literary people, maybe of some kind, or older people. But I mean, it, uh, younger people, it, everybody talks like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's the yeah. Purity is not a goal. I think. Yeah, <laughs> and, definitely and it's easy, not. And it, film is a great way to reflect it, or songs, or something like that. But there's writing that's complicated. Writing makes right. it a much more difficult thing to deal with. Yeah, I think I think the topic of purity really is applicable, not so much in daily usage, but it's really about literary, literariness, right? Good literature, mm -hmm. what should it be? And, you know, this mm -hmm. debate is old. Uh, both Amrita and I teach post-colonial uh, literature, you know, and this, there's a constant thing, right? Is it, mm -hmm. are, we, are we sitting with the pure version? Uh, even of English, or yes. is it is is the sullying a resistant and important uh, thing around it? So I think it's a complicated it's a it's a complicated uh, question. But thank you so much. This is so illuminating and wonderful. Thank, thank you, you so thank much, you Daisy. For this, me. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah. this was great fun. <laughs> <laughs>